Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, just want to make sure that you're following along with the Lincoln Project on all of our coverage regarding the January 6th committee hearings. Testimony has been explosive. The evidence has been damning against Donald Trump and his attempt to steal the 2020 election. I hope you'll follow us and understand just how close we were to losing it all. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by co-founder of The Lincoln Project, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, and author of New York Times bestsellers, Running Against the Devil, and Everything Trump Touches Dies, the one, the only, Rick Wilson. Rick, thanks for coming back. Reed Galen, it's good to be with you in the same room. I know. It's astounding. I know. At a secret, undisclosed It's good for our relationship. It is, (laughs) as always. All right, so Rick, this past Tuesday, after being off for a couple of weeks, we saw the House Select Committee on January 6th resume its public hearings with its seventh convening. The session was led by Representatives Jamie Raskin of Maryland and Stephanie Murphy of Florida and focused on the role that right-wing extremist groups played in the violence that took place that day. It featured testimony from Jason Van Tatenhove, a former spokesperson for the Oath Keepers, and Stephen Ayers, a participant in the insurrection. So... After seven of these, Rick, what was your top takeaway from what you heard and saw? If you think about the 1-6 committee as a sort of a pincer movement, what you saw on the hearing this week was a flank of the pincer movement that described both the knowledge that the election had not been stolen, the evolution of Trump's legal team selling this lie to him, even though the professionals and the the actual non-mutants were telling him it's all bullshit. and how that lie then evolved into a very considered plan, a conspiracy, if you will, to have an armed and violent crowd motivated enough by Trump and his language and his rhetoric to go at the U.S. Capitol. There's a lot more evidence now of how this conspiracy worked. And I think this was a really bad day for Team Trump. I think it was. And obviously, as they have done so far, you know, with the six previous hearings, They have done their homework. They have charted out the path they want to take. I thought that Representatives Murphy and Raskin did a very good job, and we'll get to their closing statements in a moment. But, you know, one of the witnesses, Jason Van Tatenhove, so he was a guy that worked with the Oath Keepers, which is, as he said, is not a veterans organization. It's not a community support group. He worked with Stuart Rhodes, the, you know, I think soon to be, if not an already imprisoned leader of this. And he was very clear, Rick, that this was an armed militia movement that its leadership hoped became a paramilitary organization on behalf of Donald Trump. So think back to the 1920s and early 1930s brown shirts in Germany, right? These are people who are well and heavily armed looking for a fight to advance a specific politician or political ideology. Yep. And the brown shirts were just one of this array of paramilitary organizations in Germany at the time. 
And I know people get upset when we compare the American militia movements and the American paramilitaries to the Nazis and their precursors, but if the jackboot fits, wear it. These people, Stuart Rhodes in particular, and the other organizers of the Oath Keepers, they built an organization that they claimed supported the Constitution and the country, but was in fact comprised of people who demonstrated on 1-6, they were willing to use violence to overthrow an American election, a free and fair election, and that they were an accepted part of the Republican coalition that was trying to help Trump illegally claim that he had won this election. And you know the thing about the Republican Party, there's an old lesson that they derive from communism, and it's no enemies to my right. You know, Mitch McConnell and Stuart Rhodes, there's no six degrees of separation there. It's one degree of separation. They're all in service to Trump. They are all dedicated to stealing this election. And the truth of the matter is, what you saw this week from the two gentlemen who left those movements was an act of bravery that no member of the White House staff saw fit to exhibit. No member of the White House staff even called a reporter and said, holy shit, you can't imagine what they're doing. This is crazy. I have to stop this. Not one of them. They all nodded up and down and go, oh, they might have whispered amongst themselves, this is nuts, man. This is crazy. But they didn't take action to stop it. Well, and I just want to bring in McConnell, who you mentioned, which is, you know, on December 15th, McConnell congratulates President-elect Joe Biden. The election had been called for President Biden on Saturday, November 7th, but it was an intervening six weeks until McConnell did it after the Electoral College officially met in state capitals and, you know, cast their ballots for Biden. And I think it was on background, Rick, but the quote, and I'm almost sure it was from like a guy like Josh Holmes, who's sort of the maestro of Mitch's world, which was like, what's the worst that can happen? Well, humor him. And what they either refused to believe or couldn't believe or went along with. And I think, frankly, with these guys, it was probably one of the first two. They either couldn't believe it or wouldn't believe it was that in those intervening six weeks, they allowed this conspiracy to pick up speed because the normals, and I put that in air quotes, had told him he'd lost. The crazies were still trying to hold on to power, but we'll never know if official Washington, specifically Republicans en masse, had said, thank you, Joe Biden, not on December 15th, but on November 8th, whether or not this ever happens, because now too many walls have closed in around him. He can't count on Republican members of the U.S. House. He can't count on the Ted Cruz's and the Josh Hawley's of the world to do dirty work for him. And therefore, every part of an accident chain that needed to occur, there was always a circuit breaker somewhere, and they didn't pull it. Since 2015, gentry Republicans, respectable Republicans, have been saying, don't worry. What's the worst that can happen? It's not that bad. We'll get them under control. We'll keep it from going completely off the rails. It's going to be fine. And, you know, it's never fine. It never stays on the rails. And I remember having a conversation right in the beginning of COVID with one of his squishier but still, you know, supportive members of Congress who said, look, you know, he's going to let the CDC take care of it. He's going to come out of this looking better than before because he's smart enough to know, you know, we've got to get a vaccination program running. And, of course, a million dead Americans because of the fuckery he played going into this. The other thing I think is really interesting is we saw now direct evidence of communication with Steve Bannon, who is the heart of this cancerous plot. And Bannon's long conversations with Trump, followed immediately by his declarations on the 5th of January about how it's not going to go like you think. It's going to be 
a much more shocking event than you believe. When he said that, I believe you saw one more piece of evidence of this conspiracy with these outside individuals, Bannon, Stone, Alex Jones, Ollie Alexander, Charlie Kirk, all these other people. Doug Mastriano probably is somewhere down the food chain. But all these people who were organizing to bring activists to Washington to attack the Capitol. And they didn't think it was going to be a peaceful march. There's no way that all the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, Boogaloos, and the rest of these idiots showed up, got out of their mom's basement, drove to D.C. with their AR-15s in the back of the truck, tooled up, got their gear, got their kit, and showed up in a tweet from the president a few days before. This was a plan. There was a plan from the beginning. There is other evidence that the unit of Oath Keepers who went in the stack up the Capitol steps on the north side, they had a direct understanding of where the electoral count documents were held. And I don't remember their names, but the two women that busted out of there and escaped with the Electoral Count Act certified documents. I mean, those two women saved the country. Those people knew what they were looking for. They were going to say, oh, these were destroyed. Oops, we have to do it again. Back to the states. And at that point, this conspiracy that was going out on the states with Trump's weirdo clack of bizarro land lawyers, Rudy, Jenna Ellis, John Eastman, Sidney Powell, all of this cohesiveness is what we saw out of this hearing, that this was a plan. And look, you and I both know this. We come from this world. Republicans don't take a dump without having a plan. Right. So I want to talk about that for a second because, first of all, all these events are being organized. Katrina Pearson, Caroline Wren. Katrina Pearson is a communications staffer. Caroline Wren's a fundraising staffer, but they're both involved in the production and organization of these events. Katrina Pearson, very concerned about the types of people that are likely to show up on the stage with the president, but gets over it. And in fact, in a text exchange with Brad Parscale, the infamous Brad Parscale, as all this stuff is going on, he says he's causing this. And she said, no, he's not. And he's like, come on, Katrina. He is. When Brad Parscale, who is basically Trump's dog, knows what's happening and shows a fractional momentary glimmer of a moral center. And look, I'm not surprised Katrina Pearson didn't like those guys. She has a long beef with Ali Alexander back from their days in Texas. But even Katrina Pearson, who has tried to gentrify herself and tried to sort of polish herself up as an acceptable Washington figure, recognized that you don't want some of these people on the camera with the president. And because why? Because they said the shit that they said while they were marching down to the Capitol. Hang Mike Pence. It's 1776 and, you know, the blood of patriots will be spilled. Put gallows up on the on the Capitol. All these things, even they knew. And again, what did Katrina Pearson do with that knowledge? Not a goddamn thing. She sat on it. And one thing we also now know is that on the day, on the 6th, Alexandra Priate, who is Steve Bannon's chief of staff and PR person, was meeting at the Trump Hotel with Carolyn Wren and other members that were in one of the several war rooms coordinating the activity. So there's another line of Bannon back right into the Trump organization on that day. She was his runner. Right. And so all of these people, again, came together. And I think that Congresswoman Liz Cheney started to put together those pieces in her closing remarks yesterday. I do want to talk about, though, like what Trump knew and when he knew it. So there was an original version of his speech that he was supposed to give at the Ellipse that was inflammatory. And the White House counsel and the speechwriters took out the more inflammatory. Right, when, when even Stephen Miller's like, whoa, boss, this is too much. Right. So it came out. Trump then has a phone call with Mike Pence 
where Pence says, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. You know, Trump calls him a wimp, calls him the P word and orders the language to be put back in the speech about we're going to march down to the Capitol, the Mike Pence stuff, which indicates to me in my only role as a jailhouse lawyer that Trump knew what he wanted to say and knew what he needed to say in his mind if Pence didn't go along with it, which denotes some sort of knowledge before the fact. I think it is increasingly hard to dispute that Trump desired the violent outcome of 1-6. And I may be racing ahead of this as a non-lawyer, but what is another piece of evidence we know about that? In a previous 1-6 committee hearing, we had reporting that Trump said, I don't care if they have weapons, take down the mags. They're not going to hurt me. Right. They're not here to hurt me. They're not here to hurt me. And they're going to march to the Capitol right. from right They're going to march to the Capitol from right here. And the fact that you know the speech got jacked up from one Mike Pence reference to eight, you know, that Miller put back in the rhetoric that was meant to inflame that crowd about stolen votes and all the other hoo-ha. I think all of that comes down to a lot more knowledge and a lot more intentionality on his part to cause this attack to happen. Right. So I want to talk about Stephen Ayers. Stephen Ayers was a gentleman who, near as we can tell, was not a member of an organized group. It's a guy who's from northeastern Ohio, someplace, I assume, outside of Cleveland. And he said, I heard about it on social media. I heard Trump say, come to Washington. I hooked up with some guys I knew were going. Then Trump said, storm the Capitol. We're all going to go. We go. We thought he was going to. We come thought he was coming with us. Yep. And then I go in and, you know, Mr. Ayers, I think, gave interesting, perhaps even impressive testimony. But like he did appear to be kitted up himself, at least in that oh, yeah. one admittedly yeah. grainy photo. But then he said when Trump tweeted, it's time to go home, we left. And why I think that's important, Rick, is because I think it's maybe the most personalized and crystallized version of the individual hold Donald Trump has on millions of Americans. That's a really good point. And his repetition over and over again that the election was stolen, that Washington was corrupt and they were stealing this election from him and the states were corrupt and the Democrats were corrupt, they were stealing it from him. It affected guys like Stephen Ayers. And, you know, there were a lot of people and, you know, some of our friends on the left who were like, ho, ho, he looks like a blah, 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 blah. But you know what? He was braver than dozens of White House staff members. He showed courage. And he also showed a greater courage than not just the, like the moment of testifying. He showed courage by saying, I did something wrong. I was in a, an environment where I was being fed this conspiracy and this craziness, and I followed it. And then I took the blinders off. You know, I've talked to a few people who said, you know, I stopped watching Fox and my world changed in a month. And I think CNN actually did a study of that, of a number of people. And it wasn't like 90%. It was like 13%, maybe not even that high. But the point was yeah. a demonstrable number of people are able to climb outside the reality distortion right. field when that stuff is removed. And when Trump was removed from Twitter, and now that he's been reframed a little bit by Fox, I think it is what's contributing to some of the decline in voter intention to vote for him in 24. But I also want to caution people. Being a giant who's a little less powerful than he used to be is still a giant. He still controls what I call the Trump hotties, about 35% of the Republican world. They will set themselves on fire for this guy. And he'll set them on fire, as we saw with Mr. Ayers, who absolutely he lost his job. He was a supervisor at a factory, yep. right? So he wasn't on the line. This was a guy who was in management, yep. right? He had to sell his house. 
He said that he was grateful that some of the federal charges against him had been dropped. But this is a guy who's going to have to go figure his life out now, as I assume. I don't know if it's a misdemeanor or a felony, but as a federal convict of some sort. But Trump's life hasn't changed demonstrably. Right. Donald Trump, the conspiracy head, still sits in the bridal suite at Mar-a-Lago, still goes golfing four days a week. Well, he's in Bedminster right now. And aside from the fact that, you know, every time he walks into Melania's room, she's writing in her slam book, Mrs. Ron DeSantis, he hasn't had a material impact on his life from this. And I know there's a lot of frustration with the DOJ right now. They've been working in this bottom-up sort of approach to this thing, which is how they do it. When they start a big investigation of an international drug ring, they don't go for the kingpin first. They roll up the lower-level guys, then the distributors. They roll up the chain. I do think we're seeing more and more evidence now that it's time to start seeing some of the, the motions of these people who were part of the conspiracy, who were part of encouraging this. And, you know, Barbara McQuaid this week made a really compelling point where she said, there's an argument to be made that he's an accessory to manslaughter because of the five people who died that day. Because the argument is, and unless he'd said, we're going to the Capitol, you would not have had a violent march to the Capitol. And what we learned from the hearings this week is there was a plan, a plot, a scheme, a strategy put together by his allies and by some people in the White House. There were White House aides who were acknowledging, don't say anything about the 1-6 stuff or the park service will get mad at us. We didn't get a permit for this, so don't say anything. They knew what was happening. They knew what the intention was, and they knew who the people were because you had Katrina Pearson and others who were saying, don't put these crazy people who are violent on the stage with the president. Put them in this other thing in Freedom Plaza. And Trump opened the door to the West Wing so that he could hear the yes, cheering and the correct. music and everything else. And you've got guys like Enrique Terrio from the Proud Boys posting pictures of the colonnade outside the White House. You know, these people were around. They were in the room. They were in a circle of people who told Trump he could go through this and extra legally keep power. And even Steve Bannon this week, there's an audio clip that was released this week where Steve Bannon essentially admits it. He lost. Yeah, sure. But we're going to do this anyway. So, Rob, can we play that clip from Bannon? And what Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory. But that doesn't mean he's the winner. He's just going to say he's the winner. The Democrats, more of our people vote early that count. Theirs vote in mail. And so they're going to have a natural disadvantage, and Trump's going to take advantage of it. That's our strategy. He's going to declare himself a winner. So when you wake up Wednesday morning, it's going to be a firestorm. We're going to have Antifa crazy, the media crazy, the courts are crazy, and Trump's going to be sitting there mocking, tweeting shit out, you lose. <laughs> I'm the winner. I'm the king. And he'll be all over. He'll be, he'll be going, where's Hunter? Is Hunter on a crack pipe? I mean, no. He'll be, because then it doesn't matter. Remember, here's the thing. After that, Trump never has to go to a voter again. He's going to fire Ray, the FBI director, and fire the scene. going to say, fuck you. How about that? Because he's never going to, he's, he's done his last election. Oh, he's going to be off the chain. He's going to be crazy. Also, also if, Trump is, if Trump is losing by 10 or 11 o'clock at night, it's going to be even crazier. No, because he's going to sit right there and say they stole it. I'm, yeah. doing the, uh, I'm directing the attorney general to shut down all ballot places in all 50 states. It's going to be no. He's not going out easy. If, Trump, if Biden's winning, Trump is going to do some crazy shit. You know, one other quick thing before we I close up on the January 6th, or two more things, I should say. One is Pat Cipollone's testimony about this insane December 23rd meeting in the Oval Office in which it was the Kraken lady, Sidney Powell, 
Patrick Byrne, the head of Salesforce.com, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn retired, and they're trying to make their case to Trump that, you know, he should push and push and push on this. And, you know, somebody goes to get syphilis, and he's like, you got to get down here. And he's like, how the hell do these people get in? And, like, you can't just walk on to West Exec no. and into the West Wing <laughs> lobby, Rick. Like, that's not a no. thing, right? No. Not since, like, Teddy Roosevelt's second inaugural, right? Like, these things don't happen anymore. So, like, oh, it's a junior staffer. Who the hell? Like, there's a process, right? There's Social Security numbers. There's birth dates. There's all this other stuff. I mean, Patrick Byrne is an individual tied to Maria Butina, a, a Russian, Russian spy, a Russian, spy yeah. a Russian intelligence asset. So, like... That was one, again, as someone who was lucky enough to work there, it's just like, sure. what the fuck is going I mean, on? I mean, you worked there. Uh, you know, when I worked in the, in the administration, I've been to the White House enough times where being badged in is not trivial. These guys like Enrique Terrio, who are always wearing their, you know, chest rigs and their LBVs and their other gear, I can't imagine the service was delighted by this. But clearly, they were told by someone, probably Mark Meadows, these guys are okay. They're our friends. Let them in. And if you're calling the White House switchboard and you're some rando podcaster with, you know, some sort of scabies like Steve Bannon, you don't get through to the president just randomly. And you don't talk to him twice in the same night, the night before a major act of insurrection. So I have to say what the committee has done brilliantly, and I, I will admit it again, I was skeptical. In the beginning, the committee was very divided on what this was going to do. I think what happened was they were born again hard when they found out Americans gave a damn. When they saw Americans were watching this and paying attention to it and focusing on it where they knew this was something that mattered to the country more than the sort of right-wing apparatus thought it would be. And they keep drilling down into the details and the data, and it's more and more of a damning case against these people. Right. Well, speaking of both phone calls and criming, Donald Trump continues to crime, even up to this moment. So one of the things, Rick, that has been, I think, a brilliant piece of stagecraft is that they end Every hearing with a little bombshell, a little cliffhanger, just to keep yeah, you coming right, back. Right, right. And in the seventh hearing, it was Liz Cheney noting that a witness who has not yet appeared before the committee received a phone call from Donald Trump. They did not answer. Right, they it. didn't answer it. Immediately referred it to their attorney, who immediately referred it to the January sixth committee, who Rick I think is an important thing referred it immediately to the Justice Department. Which is being lost in this, I think. Yeah. You know, this is your favorite president. I'm calling you to say <laughs> you should definitely right. not Defin say. You should definitely, definitely, definitely not talk to those on the people. OOPK right. this week. So don't say anything <laughs> about it. And I want to say that I am your favorite president. And when I'm back, and I will be back. <laughs> yeah. You're going to have a job. You've always been my favorite. You've always been my you're favorite. Always, or you're a coffee uh, person. Yeah, you're a favorite person or you're a coffee person. There's only two places for Trump. But going back to one thing you said about the Justice Department, there's a lot of people like, get rid of Garland now. Do this now. Like, Stop. guys, let's be clear. Stop. First of all, be grownups. Second of all, it's the Justice Department. If you don't have any belief in them, I don't know what to tell you. But I will say this is that to Rick's earlier point, they are building a case or cases against numerous people. And I've said it before on the podcast. And, and if you've seen the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. They are setting people up for the Henry Hill moment. Absolutely. You're going to go to jail. Your wife's going to go to jail. Your kids are going to be orphans. You're never going to get out of this, right? These people don't care about you. Make your choice, right? And when you're sitting in front of an assistant U.S. attorney and an FBI agent sitting next to your wife and your, your lawyer, your perineum gets very, very taut, 
and you start to see the world in a different way. And you ask yourself, am I going to federal prison for multiple years on behalf of a guy I know would throw me off a boat in half a heartbeat? I think the Henry Hill moment is coming most swiftly for Mark Meadows, who is a centerpiece inside the White House of coordinating all these different players on the outside, who we know now had gone to the war room, had spoken to all these different people, had done things and left things undone in the course of this. And Mark Meadows strikes me as a guy who will not prosper in federal prison, and he knows that. And I will say this also, his federal exposure is one thing, but you know he's also apparently, and I don't know if you folks know this, but just after the election, Mark Meadows sent a message to Bill Barr at the Justice Department sending forward an opposition research packet about the Lincoln Project. And he mentions you, and he mentions me, and he mentions Stu. And plus a bunch of otherwise innocent and uninvolved people who had retweeted something. So he had a, a he, he clearly, right after the election, asked Bill Barr to go after the Lincoln Project. Right. And so, so guys, I just want to rewind this, and I, I just want to say it again. On November 11th, 2020, eight days after Election Day, the chief of staff of the White House to the president of the United States sent a political attack document to the attorney general of the United States saying, here's the Lincoln Project info. There had clearly been some communication or discussion beforehand, right? Who ordered it compiled? Who compiled it? Who delivered it? With what intention was it delivered? And so, guys, we'll be asking a lot more questions to Department of Justice, the archivist, and all the other people, the White, House. We, the White House, we may believe were somehow involved in this because this, Rick, is exactly what everybody wants. The bad guys want you to sit down and shut yep. up. They want you to be scared. But, Rick, we should never underestimate what this really means to what this whole thing was, which was Donald Trump was willing, ready, and almost able to use state power against his political opponents and to stay in the Oval Office against the wishes of the voters of the United States. That's and right. We must never forget what all of this was about. You know, that's exactly right, Reed. And, and I brought up this case, not because it's just about us, but because it really personalizes the abuse of power. And back in the old days, conservatives were really worried about the abuse of power by the executive and by the state. And now it had become so regularized. We're probably not the only group. We certainly know we were, we were a prominent known opponent of the Trump White House, but this could happen to anybody. And if you make this a norm in our society, if you make this a norm in our politics, it's poison and it's dangerous. You know, we're going to pursue this, folks, as far as we possibly can. And as all these other things are happening, we think it's vital that, you know, you stay involved, you stay engaged, and you keep paying attention to the fact that the politics in the country right now are changing quickly. We are not in the same doldrums we were in two months ago. The voting intention is switching away from Republicans in a lot of these key races. Part of this is because of 1-6, and people realize that, yes, inflation and gas prices and choice and all these other things are important, but it's also a bigger choice about what kind of country you live in and whether we're going to live in a country where the state can target you for your political views. That's a good segue, Rick, to where we are you know, in the electoral dynamics of mid-July before a midterm election. So to your point, the generic ballot, and guys, that means that when an average voter is asked, if you had to vote for a Republican or a Democrat, which would you vote for? You say Republican or you take a Democrat, right? And they compile all this data, and you know it says, okay, 
seven percent more voters are likely to vote for a Democrat in Congress than they are a Republican. Well, that's good for Democrats. If it was plus five for Republicans, that would be good for Republicans. And we've seen that, Rick, this sort of seesaw back and forth. It's now tilted, to your point, back towards the Democrats. We've seen also there was a survey as we're taping this out of Michigan that shows Gretchen Whitmer, the governor up there, up by low end 10 against her opponents and the high of 14. And she's above 50, which, as Stuart will tell you, is a really typically good barometer of Mm -hmm. where you think that a governor will end up. A lot of these Senate races now, as Joe noted in a memo that he put out back, I think, in January or February, have the absolute kookiest of the kooky, whether or not it's Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania or Herschel Walker in Georgia or, you know, Ron Johnson being Ron Johnson, Adam Laxalt being Adam Laxalt. Arizona's, you know, we don't know yet, but again, it looks like Mark Kelly's building up ahead of steam. So those are all good things. But the weird thing, too, is, Rick, is that in a survey last week, it was like literally 86 percent of the country saw us on the right track, wrong track, wrong track, wrong track. And, you know, 10 percent saw us going in the right direction. And President Biden's approval ratings are in like the mid to low 30s. If you just separated everything I said before those two stats, It should equal absolute bloodbath for Democrats. But what you talked about when we first started talking about what effect these hearings have is that there is a depression on Republican enthusiasm and Republican support because of the insanity. And so now what it looks like is that, yes, Biden in the 30s is bad, but there seems to be a disconnect on whether or not it's a referendum on him or whether or not voters see it as a choice of what direction they want. Do they want the insanity, the ugliness, the chaos, or are they willing to take somebody in the Democrats who maybe they don't love, but aren't fucking crazy every day? And that doesn't speak for every Democrat, but it speaks for a lot of them. You know, it is that choice between distaste and madness. (laughs) (laughs) Rick and I are going to wear smoking jackets, sit in front of a fireplace with a sniffer and say, distaste or madness for Frederick? Which one tonight? I believe tonight will be distaste. (laughs) My God. But yeah, no, look, it used to be the president's numbers very strongly affected their own party in the off-year elections. So if the president was at 45, that's where you could expect most of your candidates to fall in somewhere in that range. But now we're seeing for two reasons. One, they chose the crazy in Herschel Walker, Doug Mastriano, and Adam Laxalt, who you mentioned just now. And folks, I don't know if you saw this week, but Adam Laxalt, look, I dislike a lot of these MAGAs because they're not conservative, but their nationalist and authoritarianism is part of their philosophy now. But Adam Laxalt posted a picture of himself grinning, smiling like a madman outside of a refrigerated morgue truck on the U.S. border where the bodies of immigrants were stored. That's not a person that you want within a thousand miles of power. That is a guy who needs mental counseling. That is a guy who has a really profound, ugly problem. And I think it's important to remember that those people like Adam Laxalt and Doug Mastriano and Herschel Walker are not the exception in the Republican Party. They are now the mainstream. That's right. And so this is where, you know, we've talked about Ron DeSantis is having his summer of love, which is, is he buoyed by all the clearly tremendous press operation that they have running? Oh, yeah. Is he buoyed by the sort of what we would call the rump establishment Republicans, Rick, that I guess you and I would have been a part of because they see him as you said this two years ago is 
MAGA run through the car wash, right? He looks normal. He acts normal. He's got a normal looking family. He doesn't really act normal. And all of that's all a facade. But what I think you're seeing here is that there are these strike points in the, the MAGA coalition between what we call the Bannon line and the true ultra MAGAs. And like the Bannon line voters hate Doug Mastriano, right? They're not going to like the person in Michigan. But at the same time, like they like Ron DeSantis, maybe in Florida and maybe in a presidential primary. But do they go with him? And I think this also and I want to bring it back to this as we talk about the electoral dynamics. You know, we've heard rumors. Maybe Trump gets back in. What does that do? Certainly probably doesn't help Republican candidates. Right. With his. I, I think it would be a damaging blow to most Republican candidates because Trump has already linked himself inexorably to some of the craziest of the crazy. And it really makes guys like Mitch McConnell and everybody else lose their minds because they recognize that Trump will start the rally process. He will start the crazy train again. He will spend his days and nights and weeks out there on the road promoting the worst of the worst, and they will lose races down ballot. I mean, Doug Mastriano and Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania are going to have a meaningful effect on Democratic turnout and help a lot of candidates down ballot in legislative races and everything else. And I think that's going to happen in other places like Wisconsin and Michigan as well. Well, this campaign is far, far from over. Oh, yeah. Absolutely still winnable for the pro-democracy candidates in this country. And we need you all to do everything you can. I know I've said it before. We really need you to do it. Join the union.us. Sign up. Help us volunteer in these key states where we're going to make sure that these pro-democracy governors, Democratic Senate candidates who are fighting back against the crazy, these secretaries of state candidates, yeah. attorneys general candidates, like we're going to need your help, gang. Voting's going to start, Rick, six weeks from now in some yeah, places. Yeah, about six weeks. Right, right after Labor Day. So, all right, Rick, before I let you get out of this beautiful room where we're recording, where can our gang find you online? I am at the Rick Wilson on the Instagram machine and on the Twitter. As always, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. You can find me on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. As always, everybody, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. 
Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.